humans, hello humans, hello humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Hello, hello, happy, happy Saturday Easter Eve. I don't know if that's what we would call it. Let's just call it Saturday. Happy, happy warm Saturday. Happy, like, warm Saturday of many warm days coming. I mean, my goodness, <laughs> things are brightening up here in Minnesota. Okay, well, we have a great show here. Um, the big interview is with a man named Jamie Edwards, who's going to talk about a nonprofit organization named Pink Socks. And you, this will just grab you because it has grabbed me. Um, and not that I know everything, but I think it's going to grab you. In my C block, uh, which I don't know how much time I'm going to have for it, um, I'm going to talk about what's going on again about transgender people in America. I'm, I'm not sorry. This is something that I have to talk about because I'm supposedly a leader in the community. But let me start with the story of an idealist who appears to be paying quite the price for his idealism. Um, this is a long story, so settle in, pull up a cup of coffee, and get ready. I'm speaking of a disbarred lawyer by the name of Stephen Donziger, who is the architect of a multi-billion dollar lawsuit and judgment against Chevron, you know, the oil company, for polluting and destroying a portion of the Ecuadorian forest in the Amazon. Some of what I detail here is from – very little is detailed from a March 30, 2021 piece in The Nation magazine by James North. I, actually, I don't even know how much I – if I have anything out of that. Otherwise, most everything here that I'm reporting is from Wikipedia and you can you can Google Stephen Donziger and D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R and you can get what I'm talking about. Who is Stephen Donziger and what is this controversy about? Donziger was raised in Jacksonville, Florida by a mother – who was a social activist. In fact, he, when he was a child, his mother took him to a picket line in support of Cesar Chavez's salad bowl strike. On top of that, Donziger's father was a Brooklyn DA and then later a judge. Donziger went on to attend American University and then from there he went to Nicaragua where he freelanced as a journalist. Um, and, um, and he also began as an idealist by founding a legal nonprofit, Project Due Process, to help the Cuban folks coming over as part of the Mariel boat lift. Eventually, Donziger went to Harvard Law School, and according to Wikipedia, he even played basketball with Barack Obama. How's that for rubbing elbows or pointing them? After graduating from law school, Donziger worked as a public defender in Washington, D.C., and then in the mid-1990s, he went to Iraq to study the impact of bombings on civilians during the first Gulf War. He produced a report about those bombings and about the effects on Iraqi civilians, which the United Nations adopted. Not bad for somebody in their early 30s as an idealist. After that, Donziger went on to become the editor uh, of a book about um, studying the, the, hype, the hype and how the country was manipulated into, believe, into being so fearful relative to the war on crime. And he published uh, – he was the editor of a book published about that, arguing against mandatory sentences. All of that is quite idealistic, but the reason that I'm here highlighting Stephen Donziger is that in 1993, he and other attorneys instituted a class action lawsuit in federal court in New York against Texaco. This was on behalf of 30,000 Ecuadorian farmers and indigenous people from an area in the Amazon in Ecuador where Texaco had been drilling for oil. Texaco's environmental practices were completely 
lacking, apparently. Um, pollution uh, was rampant. In fact, there were like oil-filled lakes and it, it, it sounded horrible from the description. In fact, before the class action lawsuit uh, was filed, Texaco had actually agreed to a $40 million cleanup with the Ecuadorian government. The claim was that Texaco had failed to fulfill that obligation. So it agrees to clean up. Then the claim was, well, Texaco actually didn't do it. Um, and then Texaco, in, in defense of that, said, well, no, we had an Ecuadorian partner who was supposed to you know, clean up the remaining pollution that we didn't clean up. Nonetheless, there was a class action lawsuit um, filed in New York City in federal court. And while the class action lawsuit was going on, uh, Chevron bought Texaco. Okay, so that's why Chevron's in this picture. At that point, Chevron argued that the lawsuit should not be tried in the United States, but instead in Ecuador. Eventually, the federal court in New York agreed with that, but conditioned that agreement, unlike dismissing the lawsuit in New York, conditioned it on Chevron agreeing that it would accept any judgment by an Ecuadorian court. Chevron agreed to that. With legal proceedings now in Ecuador, Danziger helped generate public interest about the case among the Ecuadorian people, and that included him appearing in a 2009 documentary titled Crude. Eventually, in 2011, now at this point, the case had been going on one way or another since, 20, since 1993. So this is 18 years the case is going on. Eventually, an Ecuadorian provincial court found that Chevron was guilty of polluting uh, the country uh, side and um, and other allegations in that lawsuit, and the Ecuadorian provincial court awarded the class action plaintiffs eighteen billion dollars. Three appellate courts in Ecuador affirmed that judgment. How eventually, though, the Ecuador's National Court of Justice, the equivalent of our Supreme Court, have that judgment to nine point five billion dollars. Okay, justice took a long time, but Danziger and his team, it appeared. And that the people of Ecuador, it appeared, had prevailed. And this is where things start to get funky. Remember that Chevron had told the U.S. federal court in New York that it would accept an adverse Ecuadorian decision that if, if it came to that? Well, once that uh, decision was final, the $9.5 billion, Chevron didn't accept it. Instead, what Chevron did is it moved out all of its assets out of Ecuador so that they couldn't be seized to pay, uh, to pay the $9.5 billion judgment. Danziger then tried to go after Chevron's assets in Canada, Brazil, and Argentina to no avail. And this is all about how companies are considered separate, even though they're related. I, I can't get into it. Um, and then in 2011, so then – so Danziger is going after Chevron – saying, I'm coming after you, even if you took your assets out of Ecuador. And at that point, Chevron decides that it's going to um, slap him back, slap Danziger back. And it filed a RICO suit against Danziger, accusing him of bribing an Ecuadorian judge um, to help that decision happen and of doctoring scientific studies that were used in the case in Ecuador. It even accused Danziger of writing part of the judgment that the Ecuadorian court issued. For its part, Chevron wanted $60 billion from Danziger. Chevron initially had asked for a jury trial, and this RICO suit was filed in New York, in federal court in New York, New York City. And, Rico, and Chevron initially wanted a jury uh, to hear that case, but two weeks before the trial, it dropped the jury 
demand in the case, and it shifted from asking for $60 billion to asking for less money and an injunction to stop Danziger from trying to collect the $9.5 billion Ecuadorian judgment. Hopefully you're following all this. So then there's a trial in front of a federal judge on the RICO injunction. At that trial, Chevron produced a former Ecuadorian judge named Alberto Guerra, who claimed that Danziger had paid him and another judge to throw the case in Ecuador um, in favor of Danziger's clients and against Chevron. The U.S. federal judge in New York then ruled in Chevron's favor and found that the $9.5 billion Ecuadorian judgment shouldn't be enforced. But the judge went beyond that and ruled that Danziger had broken a host of U.S. laws around the RICO statute and should be prosecuted as a result by the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Yes, that is the very same Southern District of New York U.S. attorney's office that's looking at former President Trump's finances as we speak. But you know what? (laughs) That U.S. attorney's office, which is a reputation for being – ruthless and being going after people and and doing a great job that you know what that US attorney's office didn't take the bait it didn't want to go after Danziger and it refused to prosecute him undaunted undaunted the federal court um decided uh that uh uh, it will – it would do something else, OK? So uh, it uh, – and, and I, I'm looking at my notes and I better make sure I get this down. The, the uh, Southern District uh, U.S. Attorney's Office may have declined to go after Danziger for one reason and that is um, a year after, OK, the federal court issued the RICO judgment against Danziger, that Ecuadorian judge, um, Eduardo uh, Guerra, that um, – That judge, you know what? He recanted. He said that actually he had lied and that um, he told an international tribunal that not only had he lied but that there was no evidence supporting the claim that Danziger had bribed him or had done anything else to influence – apparently to influence the decision down in Ecuador. It also came out (laughs) that Chevron had moved that judge and his family to the U.S. from Ecuador and that Chevron was paying that judge uh, the tune of $12,000 a month in housing and living expenses. You get in the picture here. However – Eventually, uh, a U.S. Court of Appeals refused to consider how the judge had changed his testimony. However, it also went and removed some of the money judgments that Chevron had collected against Danziger. Uh, But still, the case isn't over because uh, based on the federal RICO ruling, um, New York State disbarred Danziger. In 2020, an independent referee recommended that Danziger's law license be reinstated in New York, but a New York Court of Appeals rejected that. And then there is the the fact that Danziger, because the federal court had this RICO judgment, had issued a RICO judgment against him, that Danziger was ordered to turn over his electronic devices to Chevron's lawyers so that they could search for Danziger's assets. Um, uh, They wanted to go through the devices to find out 
you know, where he had his money. And Danziger refused because he said on the same, same devices or attorney-client information, or communications that I have with my clients in Ecuador. And he was worried about that information being disclosed. So he did not turn over the devices. The federal court then found Danziger in contempt and asked again the U.S. attorney to prosecute Danziger for that contempt. The U.S. attorney's office again declined. Undeterred, in what has now been described as a virtually unprecedented action, the federal judge in New York appointed a private law firm to prosecute Danziger for contempt. And you know what? It turns out that that law firm, Seward and Kissel in New York City, had actually had Chevron as a client as recently as 2018. But according to Wikipedia... Seward and Kessel didn't tell anybody that by the time that they were going after Danziger. The uproar of this law firm going after Danziger has been so immense, so intense, that law students have boycotted interviewing at Seward and Kissel. 300 students at around 50 law schools. That, too, is unprecedented. For the last two years, Danziger has been confined to house arrest in his apartment in New York City. He hasn't left it in 600-plus days, and he wears an ankle bracelet to ensure that he goes nowhere. A trial on the contempt charge against Danziger for not turning over his electronic devices is set for May 10th. Against all of this backdrop are claims, repeated claims and reports, that Chevron has pressured major media outlets like Fox News, GQ Magazine, and even the New York Times to drop stories about the Chevron-Danziger litigation. Who knows? Maybe I'm one of the few radio hosts talking about this. And on top of that, the international community has spoken out. In 2020, a group of 29 Nobel laureates issued a letter condemning judicial harassment by Chevron and urged Danziger's release from home confinement. Even the European Parliament has asked Congress to investigate how Dan- Danziger has been treated. I'll try and update you on this on the story after May, the May 10th con- contempt hearing, assuming it happens. But in the meantime, your takeaway is that idealists sometimes pay very, very heavy prices for their idealism. And for that reason, their work dis- deserves great respect and our admiration. Okay. When we come back from our break, I'm going to speak with uh, Jamie Edwards. You're going to love that interview. Um, If you like what you hear on this show, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Back on AM 950 LE 2.0 radio with your lovely Ellie Krug here. Okay, so, um, you know, go Google Stephen Donziger and uh, you'll get everything you need out of Wikipedia on that. And, and stay tuned, okay? As I said, May 10th supposedly will be the trial and there you go. But so Stephen Donziger, an idealist who's paying a price. I've got another idealist now for the big interview, who is going forward in the world, um, doing good and in a way which is far less litigious. And, and I have on the line with me Jamie Edwards, 
who is the CEO of CloudBreak Health. Uh, Jamie, are you there? I am here. Happy to be here. Oh, well, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. Thank you so very much for being here on the show. We should probably let the audience know how you and I connected. And so um, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Twitter junkie, okay? That's how I get a lot of news and information. And on Twitter, I happened to see something about an organization named Pink Socks. And, um, and you had, you had tweet, tweeted about that in one way or another. And I reached out to you and I asked if you'd be on my show. Does that ring a bell for you? It does. It's a perfect recollection of what happened. And so, uh, so Jamie, I want to, um, and I want uh, the audience to hear about Pink Socks. But first, th- there's a story even behind Pink Socks, which goes back to Cloud Break Health. And your organization, which is doing, sounds like incredible work, again, from um, a kind of a groundbreaking um, um, uh, way of doing medicine. Can you tell us what about what is CloudBreak Health and how did it start back way back in the early 2000s? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So CloudBreak Health um, is a unified telemedicine company that uses digital health tools, to help resolve healthcare disparities and address social determinants of health. And so what basically all that means is we are trying to use technology to level the playing field for underserved communities and uh, these patients who typically find our healthcare system challenging. Um, and it originally started in 2003 by a gentleman named Andy Panos. And Andy had made a trip to Mexico Uh, His family was in a car accident. No one spoke Spanish and uh, a host of problems ensued um, that impacted him in such a fundamental way that he came back to the United States and said, if this is happening, uh, you know, if it happened to me in Mexico in a diverse country like the United States, it's got to be happening every day. And so he ended up uh, doing some research in his hometown of Columbus, Ohio. And what most people don't realize if, you know, and, and, and Ellie, I'll ask you, like, how many different languages do you think are spoken in Columbus, Ohio? I would guess maybe 50 to 70. 126. Yeah, okay. Right? 126 <laughs> different languages are spoken in, you know, many cities around the country. And in Columbus, people will be like, oh, the number one language has to be Spanish. Well, it's not. It's Somali. And so as he dug into this problem, he realized that these patients are generally challenged in navigating the healthcare system. They're three times as likely to encounter harm um, and their length of stays are all longer um, because you need to have these interpreters at the point of care in order to empower these patients to take control of their care and empower a doctor to make the right diagnosis. Um, you know, communication is the number one diagnostic tool that these doctors have. And so over time, um, Andy started building the company and I got involved because it was a distressed asset back in 2007, 2008. And so I stepped in to help, you know, kind of save the business, put it on a new track and to, and to help it become what Andy always envisioned it to be. And so Andy and I partnered together. I took over the CEO role. He took over, you know, he ended up staying on as COO and we built the business from, you know, 30,000 of revenue a month to something today that's over $30 million plus of revenue um, and to something that's in 1,800 hospitals performing over 100,000 encounters a month. The lion's share is bringing these language interpreters to the point of care for LEP and deaf patients, but we started to branch out to do other things like telestroke, telepsychiatry, and become a unified telemedicine platform that brings services 
into communities that need them. Well, and of course, with the pandemic, um, I've got to believe that your services, the demand has increased tenfold, if not a hundredfold. Um, and, and people are far more willing now, aren't they not, um, to do telemedicine? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think what the pandemic did was for us, it really accelerated our product roadmap, not so much our revenue, but our product roadmap. We ended up launching new services in the market like telequarantine, which we offered for free to our client hospitals. What is that? Um, what is telequarantine? <laughs> so tele, yeah, telequarantine was a new service that we pioneered. Uh, we were the first people to do it in the country that basically enabled our devices to be rolled into a room and turn any hospital room into a connected care room. Um, and so doctors didn't need to go into round on the patient. They could do it from outside the room. So uh, we were lowering the risk of contagion. Yep. They didn't have to gown up. So we were reducing the use of PPE. Um, and it also reduced the isolation of that COVID patient in that room because they always talked about COVID being a very lonely diagnosis because no one could come visit you. And so in a HIPAA-compliant way, we gave um, those patients the ability to reach out to their family members on those devices, bring the doctor into the call so that they could take much more of a team approach to the care and the patient knew that they were being supported by family, et cetera. So that was one thing that we did. We also launched our own virtual clinic to help see patients at home. Um, and both of those are kind of newer areas for us, but have proven to really move the needle in market and support what our mission is, which is to humanize healthcare. And for us, that's about really creating what is a, a better patient encounter where the patient is treated not like a object, but like a person where the provider is not treated like a consumable, but like a trusted coach. I'm loving it. And, um, and Jamie, I'm going to throw a curveball at you, okay? But uh, and maybe a bug okay. in your ear, all right? You're aware, um, you know, I'm transgender. Um, and I'm going to talk about this at the end of my show here. But you're aware that there are states right now like Arkansas? and maybe Alabama and maybe Mississippi that are yep. actually making it illegal for doctors to work with transgender youth um, on, on medical needs, on therapeutic needs. You are, I assume you're aware that that's happening. Yeah, definitely know that it's happening and it's absolutely tragic. Um, you know, we take a lot of pride in our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. You've probably right. seen some of the stuff that we've been doing on LinkedIn. And um, everybody, everybody, LA deserves access to care um, and to high quality health care at that. And um, we really need to. I know there have been some companies that have come up recently who are really focused on the, you know, transgender and yep. LGBTQ space. Um, and I think that is nothing but wonderful for the industry, and we need to see more. Of yeah, it. I'm just wondering whether your company could tele do telemedicine for those families that are going to lose their health care, their health providers in Arkansas, since you're not located yeah, look, in Arkansas. Yeah, I mean, our, our platform <laughs> could absolutely, our platform could absolutely be used to do it. What we are not, <clears throat> pardon me, excuse me, is a technology-enabled medical group, so we don't have our own doctors, but we do ah, okay. have a network of other physicians that we don't employ that we plug people into so if uh you can help us we're, you know plug into the right people we're happy to help step in and solve that issue well let's maybe have that conversation um off air okay and so sure. um because i may very well be able to do that for you um okay what uh oh well look at my clock jamie um we're um, uh, we're going to end the first segment here but when we come back i want to talk with you about pink socks okay because my great. audience absolutely needs to hear about this organization. All right? 
Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Okay, uh, audience, we've been speaking with Jamie Edwards, from uh, who is the CEO of Cloudbreak Health. When we come back, we're going to talk with him. He's a board member of Pink Sox, and you're going to just love this organization when we talk about it. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. We're back on LE 2.0 Radio. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, AM 950. We've been speaking with Jamie Edwards, the CEO of Cloudbreak Health. But um, now we're going to talk about his role as a board member of an organization named Pink Sox. Jamie, will you please, I take great delight in asking you this, tell my audience about Pink Sox. What is it? What does it do? What does it stand for? So Pink Socks is a 501c3 nonprofit um, that was originally started back in 2015 by a gentleman named Nick Adkins and uh, one of his colleagues, Andrew Richards. And it is an organization whose really sole goal is to spread love and kindness. <laughs> and um, I've been involved in the organization now for, you know, got probably four years. Um, I originally met Nick at a exponential medicine conference in San Diego. And Nick is a guy who is a tremendous human being, but he's also very noticeable because he wears a kilt, has a big beard, and he's one of these guys who originally people would look at and say, I wonder what that guy's up to. And um, Nick realized that in the serendipity of kind of how he dressed and the conversations that he was able to start, how important that connectivity was between all of us. And he um, is someone who kind of went to Burning Man and Burning Man kind of changed his life. But one of the key principles of Burning Man is this concept of radical gifting. And so he came back from Burning Man with this concept of, you know, integrating gifting into his life um, as a way to promote kindness. Um, and over time, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. And in 2015, he started giving these socks out at HIMSS, which is the Health Information Management Society Conference. Um, and they, um, you know, became a calling card in a way for people to, he would gift them and he would say, you know, with all these conversations that are starting, like enjoy those connections, you know, be the good in the world. Um, and he would just have people pay it forward. So he'd give people some socks and then he'd give them some socks to gift. And it's kind of crazy, Ellie. Over time, we've now have over 100,000 pairs of socks that have been gifted globally. Um, there are uh, princesses in uh, the EU that are wearing them. Um, leaders of healthcare companies across the country are wearing them. Um, and um, the most recent chapter of Pink Socks has been in schools. And there are currently 25 schools in nine states who are part of what we call the Pink Socks tribe. Um, and the, every person in the school is gifted a pair of socks. Um, and these students um, are now all part of like a kindness curriculum that has been developed. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of like the serendipity of not knowing where this was going to take us and having it kind of end up here. But it's really been a wonderfully gratifying movement to be a part of. 
And uh, I couldn't be prouder of the work that's being done. Well, and these are, I mean, these literally are pink socks. I mean, they're like kind of hot pink socks. And do they have mustaches on them? They have mustaches on them, which I think um, was a kind of archetype of the original socks that Nick gave out, okay. um, which became very noticeable. Um, but yeah, you notice the color, you notice those. There's also a puzzle piece on there, which is kind of you know the, the connectivity of how we all fit together. Um, and that was a, that, those were kind of a recent addition to the socks that Nick has made as part of the messaging. Okay. Well, and, and, and Jamie, it, it is just so – it's so fundamental. An organization about kindness, about, you know, uh, being good to each other, about empathy and love. I mean, this is like right up Ellie Krug's alley for sure with the work that I do. Uh, but it's work that is so needed. But now, um, because, you know, we, and, and I know you know this, we are a society of storytellers and story listeners. That is how yep. we learn. Will you tell my audience, please, the story of Mrs. Blancas and her fifth grade class in El Paso? Absolutely. So as we all know, certain things go viral on Twitter and unfortunately in social media. Um, And unfortunately, it's usually the negative stuff that appeals to our fight or flight mechanism um, as human beings. You know, for some reason, you know, tragedy spreads like wildfire. But on occasion, good news spreads like wildfire and the positive work that people do when they see it, it really impacts them. And, you know, they desire to, to share that story to make other people feel good. So what Miss Blancas did, she was a, a teacher. Uh, she teaches first grade at uh, Dr. Sue Shook Elementary, um, you know, school, which is in El Paso, Texas. And she posted a video of her first graders leaving the classroom and selecting, you know, fist bump, high five, you know, or whatever type of, of greeting or, you know, farewell that they wanted to, to give her. And it's one of these things where every student had their own customized one and she remembered everyone to the T, right? Right. And um, you could just see how the hugs that were shared really helped set the tone for the day and, um, you know, created this connection. Like we all crave touch, right, as human beings. Um, but showed these students that there was a place that they were safe and really belonged. Um, so one of the members of the tribe, uh, Larry Joya, who lives in Pittsburgh, um, gifted Miss Blancas's herping socks. And, you know, the tweet um, that went out, um, you know, started to catch fire, if you will. And um, then more pink socks were gifted to her class. And then as people started to see this happening, and Ms. Blanc has helped pioneer what is a kindness curriculum that they use at the school um, and that is now starting to be used throughout that whole school system. Um, and eventually uh, the pink socks founder, you know, Nick, uh, Nick Adkins, went with a team of board members flying into El Paso um, and leading everybody in, you know, what is a day of kindness where 1,300 pairs of these socks were gifted and kids got to hear the message that the world is actually full of good, that we should love each other, that we should be kind to each other first. And it was an incredibly impactful experience. There were 
cheerleaders who were doing kindness cheers. Um, you know, tears were obviously uh, shed. Um, the principal let everyone in the activity, and the cheerleaders were cheerleading respect, kindness. Well, um, we, it was this incredibly impactful experience. And we need to note that somewhere along in this timeline that you're giving us, there were the El Paso shootings, right? Correct. And correct. You know, and and Mrs. Blanca's class, the school is in El Paso, right? Yep. And yep. so and they were trying to figure out how to move on. Right. Um, right. You know, and how you pull together as a community, given that situation. And so your pink socks um, helped with that moving on. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It was a way to focus people mm-hmm. on, you know, some of the positivity that can come out of um, tragedy. Um, and unfortunately there was more tragedy in this story that happened a little bit later, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, but it really, uh, you know, to impact kids at that age and teach them that kindness is the first thing that they should fall back on in any given situation. I mean, that messaging was, was huge. And Nick likes always to say, you know, the world is full of good. When you believe it, you see it, keep doing that. Um, you know, he wants these kids to be that change and to lead by example and to, you know, if you can be anything right, be kind. Right. Absolutely. Well, and, and we should let the, the listeners know that the story that you're relating is on the blog for Pink Socks on their website. Um, and uh, can you give us the website address? Is it just pinksocks.org or pinksocks? It's pinksocks.life. Dot life. Okay. And dot life. And, you know, any donations that end up being made go directly to gifting socks. And we have many more schools that would like to engage with gifting socks and the kindness curriculum. Um, and so people who donate help make that happen. And it's just something, again, we're, we're incredibly proud of. And so, but this story you're relating is on the blog under the uh, teaching kindness uh, section. But then, correct. and Mrs. Blancas is this leader. Um, I've read a lot of the uh, statements. I mean, she was a leader in the community, not just simply in what was going on with the school and your socks. And then something very unfortunate happened with Mrs. Blancas. Can you tell us what that was? Yeah. Um, Mrs. Blancas was absolutely a leader. She was a teacher in the truest sense of that word, all of the generosity that she had of, of spirit. Um, but, you know, COVID hit. And, um, you know, we hear stories um, of families who are affected with, with one less seat at the table. And unfortunately, Ms. Blancas was affected by COVID um, and struggled with it for quite some time and then eventually passed away, um, you know, leaving you know, leaving a family uh, in the wake of that tragedy. And, um, you know, it, it's sad that some of, you know, the brightest lights end up being snuffed out um, who had the potential to do so much good in this world. And her legacy is this kindness curriculum. Um, and the ability to get other schools to sign on to it and, again, affect, you know, very early on in, in, in kids' development, kind of, you know, their focus on, on being kind first. So uh, we miss her um, and, you know, obviously um, are, are sit there with her family and their grief, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tragic situation. Well, and the, the other – there's another blog post, and it is extremely tragic, and – you know, I told you off air that as I was reading a, the blog post about Mrs. Blancas, all I could do was sob. Um, yeah. But there's another blog post 
on uh, pinksocks.life uh, about vulnerability and the pink socks. And what grabbed me about that is if you, if you see somebody with a pink sock, you know automatically they subscribe to kindness and compassion. And it yep. means they are safe humans for you. Isn't that something that is unbelievable, yeah. Jamie? It's a, it's a self-selecting community of people who want to have a positive impact in the world. Um, and if you go you know, to the Pink Socks blog, there's literally 50 of these blog posts there of these inspirational stories of how people got involved and what Pink Socks means to them. And I think that's the neat thing about Pink Socks is while there's a general message – you know, people are using pink socks to raise money for their own charities. People are using uh, pink socks as a way to connect with other people. Um, but, you know, like if you go to any conference and you see someone wearing these pink socks with the mustaches, you can go up to them and say nice socks. And, you know, you're going to meet someone new who is going to be, a, you know, a, a kindness advocate. And I, I think that that is such an incredible thing and what a what a great what a great common ground. Ellie, oh right? my god! What a, what a great common ground to have where we can all pull together and know that you're going to run into someone who has that similar belief. Oh my god! I just okay. We have a minute left, Jamie. What made you an idealist? Because you really are, and I I want to applaud you for all of your work. But what made you um, what made you this way? You know, it, it, it's a good question. I think, you know, just growing up, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, which was a very normal place to grow up, you know, steel town, um, which just had great people and great neighbors. And I always felt very supported, um, you know, from my community. And I think this concept of community has always been something that's really important to me. I'm also a child of divorced parents. So um, I was old enough when my parents got their divorce to see the impact that, you know, division of a community can create firsthand. And so I've always been about creating community. And I think if you're going to create community, you've, you've got to be an idealist. Like <laughs> this is about trying to create a better world for everybody. And, you know, like it's like during COVID for a part of it, I was actually very emboldened. I was like, look, the world has given up trillions of dollars of GDP to lock arms around these issues. And maybe we're, we're not all talking about each other as different races and different nations and, and different needs. We're like, one human race. And I think for me, that's what this is about. It's about showing people how we can support each other and build bridges instead of build walls and tear each other down. Jamie, I could talk with you for three hours, okay? <laughs> idealist to idealist, because I don't think we would run out of anything to talk about. But unfortunately, uh, we've come to the end of uh, the time that we have together. I just want to thank you for being on LE 2.0 Radio I just and again, I applaud you for all the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And for anyone that wants to kind of engage in the discussion with us, Ellie, obviously they can do that on Twitter. I'm at Jamie Edwards. I, I love engaging these types of discussions. And, um, you know, I, I'm super, super grateful for this opportunity. Oh, that's just great. And it's spelled J-A-M-E-Y, right? Correct. Okay. All right. Well, Jamie, um, uh, we're going to uh, need to cut off. And uh, listeners, we're going to take a break. And when I come back, um, I'll do the C block and talk to you about what's going on in America right now about transgender people. Listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. We'll be back in a sec. Thanks. I sing a
And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio. I don't know about you, but I <laughs> energized by Jamie Edwards and the whole idea about pink socks and caring and loving for other people. Go check out that pink sock site. Donate. They'll send you some socks. I think they'll send you socks even if you just ask without donating. Please do that. Think about bringing it to your school. I am going to investigate it further, and who knows what collaborating I may do with that organization. All right, my C block, I have barely two minutes because of all the time we've gone over. Here's all I just want to say to you, okay? The Equality Act, the act that is stalled right now at the Senate to make equal rights for all LGBTQ people, not just transgender people like me and my community, but all LGBTQ people, the Equality Act is not going to make it. And the reason it's not going to make it is because of the filibuster and because Joe Manson, Manchin, is not in favor of it. That's why it's not going to make it. And how does that translate? It translates to what's going on in Arkansas right now. Arkansas has passed three anti-transgender bills, ones against um, transgender kids participating in high school sports, one uh, one allowing doctors to refuse to treat transgender people um, based on religious grounds, and the new law that um, is sitting on the governor's desk, which I think that he's going to sign over the weekend, is um, allowing, is, is mandating that no doctor, no nurse, no medical provider can treat a transgender kid Younger than 18. Can't do it or they're going to go to jail. And by the way, health insurers can decide that they, they just don't need to insure any transgender person, whether it's a youth or an adult. This is unbelievable. Think about doing that to any other community in our country. Oh, uh, brown people, sorry. You can't, your kids aren't going to be able to see a doctor if under 18 years old. You know, black people. Hey, you guess what? You know what? Yeah, health insurers can just kick you off. Health insurance. Can you? But ever, but but boy, people are okay with that with transgender people. It is wrong. And I, I'm running out of time. Otherwise, I'd go on. But listen to me, please. Speak up about this. Okay, that's it for our show. Sorry, I don't have more time. I will come back to this. Um. Because it's important. All right. A big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. You are the best in the world, Brett. I would be on any, any microphone with you on the other side. And you, my listeners, um, thanks. I hope that you've enjoyed the show. It's been a lot of stuff. Um, but, hey, go out and be good. Change the world. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye.